Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning on this Palm Sunday, and indeed we rejoice. In a world that uh, is just spiraling out of control, (laughs) truth is relative. Everyone seeking to do what is right in their own eyes, we rejoice that there is an anchor, there is a truth set, there is a king, and that is your son. We thank you for Jesus, our savior, our redeemer, our king, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the prince of peace. And Lord, on this glorious Palm Sunday, we rejoice and say with the crowd, blessed is the one who comes, blessed is our king. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 19. We've been journeying through the gospel of Luke, and if you're an astute student, you're going to say, wait a minute, we are in chapter 23, and that is correct. But we're going to jump back to 19. We purposely skipped it, and I want to thank Pastor Michael for preaching last week. But we are in 19, starting in verse 28. As you turn there, I can still remember the excitement in the air. We were lined up on two sides of the street. Oh, it was about 100 yards of people on both sides. And it was a few hours before as we anticipated the arrival of the Queen of England. It was at Crathy's Kirk there and outside of Balmoral. And we were there to worship with the Queen But more significantly, we were there to worship the king. But nonetheless, it was pretty awesome to see that little thing just come by, the queen and her entourage. And you get the same idea, don't you, here in Luke chapter 19, as this group is waiting for the arrival of a king. It's laced with Davidic imagery. That is, the promise to David, that who was a king at the time of Israel, 1100 BC, that his descendants will reign and there'll be a promised Davidic king who would come. And, and that day has arrived. And if you've grown up in the church, you've heard more than one Palm Sunday service. And my desire this morning is to, to keep us confined to the gospel of Luke so that you can see what Luke is attempting to accomplish. It's a glorious scene. And yet, it foreshadows something catastrophic, catastrophic that's about to occur. There, there's something here that's looming. And for some scholars, it's, it's, they don't even call it the triumphal entry. Because for Luke, it's the end of a section. We've been, we've been moving towards Jerusalem. This wraps that discussion up before we move into the final week, which we've been looking at. And this Good Friday, we'll look at the crucifixion and then again, the burial and resurrection on Easter Sunday. But let's look at the text. It says, after Jesus had said this, he continued on ahead. Now, what was it that had just occurred? He's been in Jericho. And all that occurred down in Jericho, the healing of the blind man and little wee man named Zacchaeus, right? We know the story. It says, going on up to Jerusalem. Now he approached Bethphage. This is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. We're on the east side, coming again up from Jericho. 
and Bethany, which is about a mile away. We know Bethany. Bethany, remember this little town? This is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus stayed. It's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's where that woman anointed Jesus' feet at Simon the leper's home. So a lot of things occurred in Bethany. And that's a mile away at that place called the Mount of Olives. Every gospel writer will refer to this mount. It's significant, and we'll look at that in light of some Old Testament prophecy here in a minute. He sent two of his disciples telling them to go to the village ahead of you, and when you enter it, you will find a colt, or that is a donkey tied there who has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Just say the Lord needs it. This was a policy in the first century in Palestine. If a teacher or an official needed to borrow something, uh, you were to allow them to have it. And Matthew and Mark tells us that they also stated, we'll return it shortly after we're finished. But nonetheless, we're told, and for those who were sent on ahead, verse 32, they found it exactly as he told them. As they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? Just as Jesus said, and they replied, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and had Jesus get on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. You get this idea that as he moves, they would pick the ones that he just the donkey just walked over and they put those in front and you just keep this going, a domino effect. And as he approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Luke is the only gospel writer that tells us this. And that's significant. Already we should take, sit up and take nourishment. Uh, this is important to the text. For all the mighty works they had seen, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, these stones will cry out. If you're following along, you, you have an outline there. If you're watching online, there's an outline there available to you. And let's just unpack this text and observe what Luke is trying to accomplish as he records this in the narrative. Again, it's a bridge. Uh, we've stated this before, but Luke has laid out his gospel geographically. We started in Galilee, we've moved to Jerusalem, which is leading us up to this point, and the rest of the focus will be in Jerusalem. When he writes his second volume, Acts, it will start in Jerusalem and will move to the uttermost parts where Paul is imprisoned in Rome. So Jerusalem is the focal point. That's intentional here in the narrative. And we see two towns mentioned. It's not surprising. Pilgrims coming in from Jericho and many would because the, the natural place for pilgrims to travel from the north is through Samaria, but no Jew would go through Samaria. So you, you have to go out of your way along the Jordan River, up through Jericho, up through the Wadi Kilt, through the wilderness, up to the Mount of Olives. And you'd stay at Bethphage, which is a term, it means house of early figs, or you would stay at Bethany, which is the house of dates. And so here we are, and again, familiar territory for Jesus, but the Mount of Olives is significant. It's a two and a half mile stretch, a mountain ridge 
on the east side of the Temple Mount. You stand on the Mount of Olives. You can, you can look over onto the Temple Mount. And in between is the Kidron Valley, which is the valley Jesus will ride down on the donkey. But Zechariah, an Old Testament prophecy, one of the minor prophets states in Zechariah 14.4, it states, on that day, his feet, this is the Lord's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east Zechariah is referring to the end times. And, and we know that Zechariah 9.9, a text that Ben read earlier, it, it, we're going to refer to that here in the text. Matthew's very explicit. So is Mark, or excuse me, John. They state Zechariah 9.9 is being referred to here in this whole triumphal entry. It's a, it, 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 this is it. This is what they've longed for as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Well, as we see from the text, Jesus is very intentional with his actions, isn't he? He's in command. He's in control. Nietzsche, you know that name, argued that the triumphal entry was Jesus' forlorn attempt, weak attempt at one more, one more chance to, to win over the people. Nietzsche said that, unfortunately, Jesus was unsuccessful. Oh, Mr. Nietzsche. No, 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 no. This whole event, the triumphal entry, was laced with messianic significance. It was intentional. Jesus knew exactly what he was trying to accomplish as he declares who he is to the people. Johnson writes, it was designed, the triumphal entry, was designed by the Lord to make it absolutely certain that no one should misunderstand that his kingdom was not simply an earthly monarchy, but also an empire of the Spirit. Jesus is in control. Just as we've seen in the arrest and in the trial, the hearings, he's in control. We're going to see it on Good Friday. We're going to see it on Resurrection Sunday. The Lord is in charge. He, he knows the beast's location. He, he knows it's tied up state. He knows that it's never been ridden, and he knows how to secure it. Jesus is fully in charge. This is, uh, you know, he, he's got it all under, uh, under his hands. I was thinking perhaps this morning, I've talked to some folks even this past week, you personally could chime in with Nietzsche and question whether Jesus has it all together. <laughs> the diagnosis of cancer, a grown child who seldom if ever speaks to you, thoughts of abandonment, desire for someone just to understand we need to be reminded, don't we, that the Lord's in charge. He knows. <laughs> he is the all-knowing God who cares and knows intimately. I love Psalm 139. It's a familiar text. But David writes, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. That's pretty amazing just in and of itself, isn't it? If he knew me and he still loves me, that's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> The Lord knows you intimately. And the, the psalmist goes on, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, the text says, oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me, says the psalmist. The Lord's in charge. 
Contrary to what Nietzsche thinks, <laughs> no, 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 no. The Lord knows fully well what he's about to take place and what a comfort that is for us. Christian author Margaret Clarkson writes, the sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. If you don't think that, Look, just look to the cross, right? All evil is subject to him and evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and of the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. God is in control. I mean, think about it. If there's no Palm Sunday, there's no Calvary. If there's no Palm Sunday, there's no empty tomb. If there's no Palm Sunday, there's no second coming. The, the Lord has already orchestrated these events. I mean, and that's what Luke's highlighting in his narrative, that we've been moving all the way from chapter 9 up to this point to Jerusalem. He's fully in charge. He knows what's taking place. Well, let's look further at the text. As we see that he's in charge telling his disciples where to go, and he says, you will find a donkey, verse 30. <laughs> I don't know about you. Every time I see that, I have to chuckle. You know, for my mindset living in 2022 in the U.S., a donkey, really? Why couldn't it be a white stallion? That's what the Lone Ranger had, right? Or a or, or beautiful carriage gilded with gold, you know, around the wheels with at least six black horses carrying it, you know? I mean, oh, a donkey? Really? Well, there's four reasons why. Let me give these to you if you're taking notes. First of all, it demonstrates first his control over creation think about this. this. This is a young donkey who's never been ridden, and you're going to tell me you're going to ride it through a crowd of cheering people throwing garments in front of his face. There's no bucking. <laughs> There's no refusal to move. No fear from the cries of those waving palm branches. No, this donkey understands who his creator is. Isaiah 1, 3 states, The ox knows his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not consider. The sad commentary, that which looms, is found in the Pharisee's statement in verse 39. You need to keep these people quiet. They don't understand. We're the theologians. We can exegete Zechariah. This is not how to this is not how it's applied. Or Psalm 118. <laughs> you get the idea, right? Yet we see here one who has control over creation. Chesterton wrote a poem called The Donkey. I just love it. it it's he, he puts himself in the, the the idea that this creature in the midst of Palm Sunday and carrying Christ along the way. He said, when fishes flew and forest walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. I mean, this doesn't make sense. Again, this is from the, the perspective of the donkey, right? When monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked wills Starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour. Once far fierce 
hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. <laughs> Isn't that great? Here's this donkey who has the opportunity to take the Son of God into Jerusalem. But it's not just his Christ's control over creation that you have this donkey. It also indicates the importance of the one riding the donkey. In the first century world, or in the Jewish mindset, it's very significant that it is a donkey. You say, how can that be? Well, even according to rabbinic literature later, it states that no one may use an animal on which a king rides. This donkey must be a virgin. In other words, no one should be riding it. It's special. And to have a purebred uh, jackass, to have a one who is exclusive, is extremely expensive in the first century. This is a rare animal. And it's reserved solely for special events. You say, well, where did they get that? Do you remember the scene with Solomon, David's son? When he's crowned king at the Gihon Spring, it says he rides a donkey down to the Gihon Spring. Later, we'll see this in Zechariah, the reference to the Davidic king riding on a donkey. And so the analogy is clear. And so the second thing that we see because a donkey is chosen, it fits with what is expected. Even Genesis 49 tells us that the tribe of Judah, their descendant, will ride on a donkey. So the connections are huge. And that leads us to the third fulfilled prophecy in that Jesus is riding a donkey. Not only in, in Genesis 49, but the text that we heard earlier, Zechariah 9.9 states, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you humble and what? Riding on a donkey. That prophecy was written in 520 B.C., 520 BC, 500 years before. And there was an understanding that when the king comes, he's riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9:16 further states, same passage, on that day the Lord their God will save them, for they are the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. Isn't that great? And so it's significant that it's a donkey and not a white stallion. It, it fits with prophecy. It fits with royalty. It fits that shows that God is the great creator who can control all things. And lastly, I would argue, there's a, an important theological truth that's being established. In a recent article by Gregory Goswell of Christ College of Sydney, Australia, he tackles Zechariah 9.9, and I think he's spot on. He argues that 9-9 of Zechariah is not referring necessarily to the Davidic king, but is actually referring to the Lord himself. Now listen to what he says. The figure seated on a donkey is shown to be a metaphorical description of the coronation and enthronement of the Lord. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, if you look at Zechariah, this prophecy, it begins with the Lord coming to his temple in chapter 2. And in chapter 14, it's the Lord who puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. And so, Gregory is arguing that what we see in Zechariah 9.9 is a reference to the Lord. And thus he applies Zechariah 9.9 to the scene 
here in the Gospels, and he argues that the Gospel writers are presenting Jesus as God himself. Think about that for a minute. That Jesus is being hailed as the king of Israel primarily points to the Lord and that this links Jesus' royal entry to Jerusalem with God's coming. Yes, there's the Davidic element there. There's no doubt. But on a grander scale, what Goswell is arguing, and I think he's correct, is that the gospel writers are saying, this Jesus, this is God. This is a presentation of him. And, and leave him, look at verse 44, which is a text we're not going to look today, but in chapter 19, verse 44 of Luke, look what Jesus says, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Jesus has made it very clear. I am. I am God incarnate. We saw that in the uh, trials and the hearing with Jesus, with the religious rulers. It's, it's significant. And it's interesting to me that, that Luke doesn't tie necessarily David's name to this, but links it more to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He highlights that here in this scene to show us this Jesus is far more than just a man from Nazareth. This is God incarnate who has come to save his people. No wonder we see that there is peace here. But let's jump back and look at the text and see in verse 35, it says they, they brought to Jesus and they put the cloaks on the colt. That term is very unusual. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the reference to Solomon when he rides the donkey down to the Gihon Spring. And notice the, the response. And don't miss this. It says, as they approached the road from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his, did you catch that? Disciples. Now, there are some scholars who want to argue this was a small little event, and this is why it never made the history books. It's why it never really, Jesus wasn't arrested on that day. I don't buy that at all. This is a huge crowd. Matthew and Mark make that point and state it's many. Matthew tells us that it, it, it riveted or it, it was an earthquake effect on the, 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 the countryside. It was that loud. It was that significant. If it wasn't significant, why are the religious rulers having a holy hissy? That's the question that we would want to ask. And I believe it's the match that, that lights the gasoline and explodes because this event, along with cleansing of the temple, is the last straw for the religious rulers. Now we must take out Jesus. Uh, he's a threat to us. Well, we see here in verse 37, the Mount of Olives. This is the second time, uh, again, I think a reference to Zechariah 14, but the second time Luke will mention this. And he tells us, again, this is unique to Luke, that the disciples begin to rejoice and praise God. That is often referred to joy, praising God in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts. Should not surprise us. We saw that even when, remember, Mary and Elizabeth, both are pregnant. Mary goes, ooh. She goes, see, Elizabeth, you're pregnant, so am I. And what happens? It says that the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaped with joy in his presence. And, and joy has, has been circling, orbiting around the life of Jesus, and we see it again. And why? Why do they give him praise? Notice what the text says, for all the mighty works. 
Remember Luke 4? Jesus starts his ministry. He reads from Isaiah 61, the scroll, at that synagogue at Nazareth. And what does he say? The day of the Lord has come upon you to give sight to the blind, to make the lame walk. Later, when they asked, John the Baptist sent his followers and said, are you the coming one? Or have I messed up? And what does Jesus say? Here's my genealogy list? No. I give sight to the blind. I make the lame walk. It's the miracles that validate this is the one that we have longed for. And we see that here in the text as they praise him for his mighty works. Again, the reference to the crowd. And notice what they declare. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The other gospel writers will mention the word Hosanna. Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentile. And Hosanna would be a term that a Gentile would not understand. Again, there are many things that were being shouted, right? Uh, There were many things said when the queen came through. Ooh, there she is. Oh, look how pretty she is with her pink. You know, all those things that are being stated. And some of those are teased out by the gospel writers to say, yeah, to fit the narrative. Luke stated, there are many things. I'm writing this in an orderly fashion so that you might uh, understand who this Jesus is, as Luke stated in chapter 1. And so we see this reference to blessed is the king. This reference comes from Psalm 118. That is a loaded psalm. It's one of what they call the Hallel Psalms. It's, it's what was sung by the pilgrims as they came to the festivals, the pilgrims, uh, up, coming up to the, for instance, Passover, Pentecost. It, it was a psalm that was laced with Davidic image. Typologically, it, in its origin, it depicted the king who would lead his people to the temple. It was one that would receive greeting of welcome from the priest and it often was sung at victories. And undoubtedly, the psalm was associated with the eschaton, the end, when everything would be made right. We even see this later in, in Jewish writings in the, uh, like the Talmud, uh, arguing that Psalm 118, or the Targums, that this is a eschatological psalm. It's linked with the Davidic king. It's linked to the hope that they have longed for. Ironic, isn't it, that the one riding into the city, Jesus is hailed as king, and one week later, he will be taken out of the city and rejected as king. (laughs) In both cases, Jesus is identified as king. One by Pilate on the cross with the sign, and here by his followers, Jesus will be called the one who comes. Salvation comes, and with that then comes peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's not just peace for the future. It's the peace here and now, isn't it, that, that we have longed for. The religious rulers, at least some of them in verse 39, fully understand what's happening. <laughs> They rebuke. I mean, think about that for a minute. They're, they're, they're telling the teacher what he needs to do. They state, you need to rebuke your followers. That term was just used earlier when the blind man said, son of David, have mercy on me. And they rebuked him and said, stop talking. It's an interesting. Look at that term. Study it in the Gospel of Luke. 
It's usually used by Jesus rebuking the demons. The religious leaders have missed it. It would seem that they are extremely offended. And certainly the Pharisees are the ones who've received the greatest criticism throughout Luke's narrative. The last time they were mentioned was in chapter 17. Sadly, after this chapter, they will not be mentioned by name. The opportunity is here to respond, and yet what looms is judgment upon them. Don't miss the last statement Jesus gives to them. If I keep silent, or they keep silent, excuse me, the, the, the stones will cry out. There's another Old Testament book in the Minor Prophets. It's those 12 books nestled in the end of your Old Testament portion of your Bible. Habakkuk was penned in the late 7th century. If you, have a, you don't know what to name your next child, Habakkuk might be one to consider. But in this book, in, in, it states in Habakkuk, in verse 11, it says, the very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. <laughs> the context is of judgment. It's stating, you Israel, Habakkuk is stating, have not heeded God's warning. And sadly, the stones of the wall are going to testify to your sin. And even the plaster is going to crawl with anguish. And Jesus says here to this religious group, he says, if I'm silent, these stones are going to speak. This is loaded. Creation responds to the joy of coming of, of the Lord. Think about Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. And then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. <laughs> Creation is exalting. And here is our God coming on a donkey and the religious rulers have the audacity to say, oh, don't, don't give exaltation to Jesus. And Jesus said, you don't understand. Even creation is ready to do my bidding. And that leads us to three points. One of those in your notes, the first of these. Jesus as king is a truth that even inanimate objects can see despite the fact that many people fail to comprehend. Dumb as a rock is an insult to the rock. <laughs> the rock is actually smarter. And in our sin-tainted world, the rocks and the donkeys have enough sense to recognize who is in their midst. What irony, isn't it? That men and women created in the image of God, unlike the donkey and the rocks, refuse to worship the creator. Sadly, our society has sought to rewrite the created order. Whether it's an establishment of a non-binary category, the inability to define man and woman, or the determination of when life begins or ends, the creator does not exist to conform to the whims of his creation. To coin a familiar phrase and to restate it, it might be a small world but it is definitely God's world after all. Hmm. What a day we live in. 
the rocks understand. <laughs> Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Numbers 14, where the Lord says, all the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord. We have an opportunity to join creation's choir in exalting our Lord. It's not the rolling stones, but it's the singing stones, right? This is why I love spring, isn't it? I just, I love the tulips as they come up. It's as if their hands are just reaching out to praise to our God. This is the one we serve. This is the one, this is our king who comes riding on a donkey. Randy Smith states, creation is a means to display God and to behold his glory. Creation leads us to worship of our God, praising him for his greatness, his beauty, his order, his design, to just name a few. Do not forfeit the opportunity to join in creation's choir. <laughs> After all, if the rocks and the donkey can do it, so can we, right? You may not be able to sing in CBF's choir, but here's an opportunity to sing in this choir, right? Not only do we see in this text that Jesus as king and his order with the created order, we see Jesus as king brings not only peace on earth, but peace in heaven. What a timely message. Even this past week, I mean, think about the news, ongoing war with Russia and Ukraine to a basketball team where the players and the parents violently attack a referee, leading him leaving him in need of 30 stitches. What? <laughs> what a world we live in. But peace isn't just needed for the purpose of our political borders or a group of basketball players, apparently, to respect a referee's calls. Peace comes and is needed personally, isn't it? Whether it's in our relationships, our workplace, school, or our inner soul. A common view is espoused by Ashley Bush in her book, The Little Book of Inner Peace, Simple Practices for Less Angst, More Calm. <laughs> she writes, I think often people look for circumstances to help achieve a sense of inner peace. She goes on, in fact, this calm, compassionate, deep awareness is actually within each person, as if we have a deep reservoir of peacefulness and serenity inside us. While we want to learn to do so, we just need to tap inside. That is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that peace will not be found within ourselves. Twist all you want in some yoga position, burn incense, and listen to some music in the background, or break out in a chant, you will not find true inner peace. Trust me, I've done enough funerals to know. I remember sitting by a lady on a plane and she had it all together. She sat down, calm as a cucumber and rather stoic. All of a sudden in the flight, the plane drops. I mean, I'd never been in a plane that did this. I mean, boom, it dropped. And she grabbed the arm of the, of the seat and said, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I said, it's good that you finally found true peace. It's Jesus. 
right? That's it. Second Peter 1, 1 through 2, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, writes to those who've received a faith as precious as ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be yours. How? In the, in the abundance, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's found in Christ. Psalm 85, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. That's why this past week, one of our members who was diagnosed with melanoma said, yeah, it's, it's a tall order, but I find peace in the Lord. I rest in him. How can he say that? Because he knows the Lord. He knows where true peace is found. Oh, it doesn't mean we won't struggle at times. But this peace, this state of completeness, soundness, wholeness is only possible from the guy who is riding the donkey coming into Jerusalem. The crowd knows that. They knew that at Jesus' birth. What did they cry? Peace on earth. Now it's peace in heaven because of this one who has come. True peace begins and ends with the Prince of Peace. It's not found in yourselves. Sorry, it's found in Christ. Jesus Christ. Peace expresses the truth of the mission, the character, and the gospel of Christ. This morning, do you have peace? Do you, do you know the Prince of Peace? Do you know this one that 2,000 years ago they were laying the garments and declaring, blessed is the one who comes. You need to know him because he's coming again. And next time he will not be riding a donkey. When he comes to earth the second time, he'll be riding a white stallion as the one who judges. Bend your knee now to the one. Cling to this one who brings peace. Join the rocks and the donkey in song. This is our Savior. Well, third, Jesus as king demands our allegiance. And sadly, again, the religious rulers were expecting a warrior king. Jesus did not fit the bill, partly because they weren't part of the equation, but that's nonetheless, he didn't fit their bill. The one, they wanted a war horse. They did not know Jesus, nor did they, they want to know him. Their expectations ruled out a king who came meekly to die. They wanted to conquer over their enemy Rome, and they missed it. They had to conquer over their enemy, which is called sin and death, which is far more dangerous than a Roman emperor. Irony is they may have refused to worship him, they crucified him, and they may have forgot him, but Jesus will return as the great Davidic king, as the great warrior. Knox Chamberlain, whose quote is in your notes, so secure is King Jesus and who he is, the Father's beloved Son, that he's free to serve rather than tyrannize his subjects or to deal gently rather than harshly with the lowest and weakest of them. Astonishingly, it is by the very means of his lowly service that all earthly tyrants will be subdued and all nations be made his possession. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, what a glorious text. 
For many of us, it's a familiar text. We've heard sermon after sermon, but it is a reminder once again that Jesus, our Savior, is King and Lord of Lords. He is the one who reigns, and it is in him that we find peace. Thank you, O Father. Thank you for your Son, in whose name we pray, Jesus.